Evening, church. How good was the worship? It was... was... Thank you, Dan. I believe that God's presence is here. Um, Like You could probably feel it. It's so tangible tonight. But if you have your Bibles with you, let's get ready to listen to what God has to say to us. So we felt His presence, but now let's, let's listen to what He wants to teach us. So if you have your Bibles, again, turn to Numbers chapter 13, verses 25 to 33. If you don't have your Bibles with you, it's okay. It will be on the screen and you can follow along on the screen. So before I tackle this passage, I need to give you the context of this passage in breakneck speed. So once upon a time, there was the Israelites as a country. They were enslaved by the nation of the Egyptians for 400 years. And during these 400 years, they were abused, belittled, and they didn't even know what a holiday was. They were forced into building projects, into laborious projects, and specializing in brick making. Until one day, God heard the cries of the people, and He was moved, and He sent them a man named Moses. Now, which some of you guys may have a problem with this because how you see it is people cry out to God and God talks to Moses and sends Moses to talk to the people. You see that progression? People, God, Moses, people. Sometimes when we talk with God, when we pray directly to God, we want God to directly talk back to us and give us the answers. But no, no, He's God. He can do whatever He wants. But sometimes... God is already working on the answer to accept the assignment to relieve you of your anguish. So God says to Moses, I'm going to use you, Moses, to bring my people out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, to a fertile, spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So when God brings you out of something, He doesn't just leave you there and say, you're on your own, little slugger. No, no, no. He goes with you and He wants to bring you to the best place to give you the best things. And God leads Israel out of Egypt with style, pump and finesse. They actually loot the Egyptian of like a lot of stuff, so much so that the Pharaoh and his armies chased after them. And God split open the Red Sea, the people got through in time, but Pharaoh and his armies were washed away and they found their bed under the seabed. More miracles happened where God provided. God provided for them a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, leading them and guiding them. He also provided them water in the desert when they didn't have any from a rock. He also provided manna and quail as they got hungry. Miracles after miracles after miracles as they journeyed and they come to their destination. They arrive to the promised land. All that the promise has to offer is they can almost grasp it. They're literally at the brink of it. And then Moses sends out 12 spies. When we talk about spies, what do you think? Spies. Do you think of the Hollywood spies such as Jason Bourne, James Bond, Ethan Hunt, Austin Powers or Johnny English? Or do you think of the real world agency type of spies like the CIA, the MI6, Mossad or ASIS? But did you know spies, it's not a new modern day concept because back in the ancient world around the globe, spies were utilized. In ancient China, 
There was a book called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. He dedicated a whole chunk of that book on 13 different ways on how to use spies. Now, if you're into anime, you'd be thinking ninjas. But pretty much spies are pretty much the eyes and ears of a nation. And here Moses sends out an espionage. He sends out 12 secret agents on a recon mission. For 40 days, this was their objective. To report if the people living there, are they strong or are they weak? Is the land good or is the land bad? What's the condition of the city they live in? Is it surrounded by wars? Is it fortified or is it not fortified? How is the soil? Check the soil. Is it fertile or not fertile? Are there trees? Because they've been wandering around the desert. Trees was a pretty important factor. If there's trees, if there's fruit trees, bring some of the produce of those trees back. And here we get to our passage. Numbers 13 verse 25. It says, at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. And these guys, I think they did pretty well. They had no casualties. The mission was a success. And they stood before their congregation. They stood before their nation, ready to give their review of their view. But before we dig further into this passage, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we acknowledge that you are here. Lord, we pray that you send your Holy Spirit moving in this place to reveal to us things that we may not see. May we see things through your eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So church, travel back in time with me to this event. As you stand in the midst of the crowd, you're all squeezed up together and you look around and you see people with excitement in their eyes. As fellow Israelites, you know how rough and tough life has been in Egypt and you've been running away and you've been wandering around a place where nothing seems like home. But finally, you see a place that could be a potential home, but you have to wait for the report and you've been waiting for 40 days. And so you are on your tippy toes and your neck is outstretched, looking at the center stage in the middle of the assembly, waiting of what they're going to say, because you don't want to miss out on nothing. And what happens on that stage is they start to bring out these baskets of pomegranates and figs and you hear the whole crowd starts applauding. But that wasn't the end of it. What also gets revealed and brought out is a cluster of grapes, not clusters of grapes, but a, just a single cluster of grapes that took two of your strongest warriors in your nation to carry it. It was so big and you might be thinking those grapes, they be thick with a double C and you're like, and the crowd is gasping. It's like, yes, this looks good. This land looks promising. And then you finally hear the verdict of the land as the 12 announces, it's true, it's true, the land does flow with milk and honey. It's exactly like how God described it to be, it is true. And with this, the crowd burst into thunderous applause. It's so loud, roaring so loud that you feel the ground beneath you starts quaking because it was so loud. You see people start jumping up and down. You see people start hugging each other and started crying. But as you look towards the stage again, you see something is amiss. That group of people, the majority of them, don't seem to be smiling. Something's, something's up. Verse 28, the spies continued their report. 
The land is good. It is good. But, but the people there, they are tanks. They're ripped as anything. They left, they live in cities that is heavily fortified. We even saw the descendants of Enoch there. You remember the story of David and Goliath? Where David versed this giant named Goliath who was around three meters tall. He could dunk a basketball flat-footed. He doesn't even need to jump. He can just dunk the thing. So for them, when they hear there was descendants of Enoch, that was synonymous to hearing there are giants living in the land. Those people, they be huge. Not only that, it's heavily populated with a whole bunch of other ites, like the Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, the Canaanites. In other words, we'll be wrecked, son. You observe the crowd again. Again, it's in an uproar. You see, those people who was once jumping for joy, they will slump down in sorrow with blank faces. Those who were crying are still crying. Fear and mayhem is about to break loose in this place. But you hear another voice, a voice of Caleb, one of the 12 spies with confidence and conviction. He says, guys, guys, it's okay. It's okay. We can go and take the promised land. We can certainly do it. And before you know it, an argument kind of takes place on stage. No, no, we, we can't attack those people. You're crazy. They're stronger than we are. The land that we explore devours the people that lives in it. All the people are great of size. Did you forget we saw the descendants of Enoch, the Nephilim? We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. That's our passage. Twelve spies went on the same mission, but they came back with two different reports. Later, we found out that there was another spy named Joshua who stood with his mate, Caleb. It was the trusting two versus the terrified ten. They saw the same land, but one group saw, when they saw the land, they saw a promise. The other group, when they saw the land, they saw a problem. One group, they saw destiny. In another group, they saw defeat. There was a story of a, a shoe salesman. Okay, that is a tongue twister. Shoe salesman. Back in the industrial era, he was trying to take his shoe selling business to the international level, especially to those unreached places. So this CEO, he sends out two workers to scout various unreached places like South Africa and into the jungles. And so he sends out the two spies, no, two scouts, and they wrote back through Telegram. You probably don't even know what that is. It's like some Morse code kind of thing. And one comes back and reports through Telegram. He opens it up and he reads the report. It says this, research done. Do not send a single shoe. Total disasters. No prospects. No one wears shoes. At the same time, another telegram comes through, through the other worker, through the other scouts. And this is what it says. Research done. Send every shoe you got. Spare. Total windfall. Amazing prospects. No one wears shoes. You see that? They pretty much said exactly the same thing, but it's how they looked at it. 
How do you look at a glass of water? Is it half full or is it half empty? Or are you a realist? It's half full and half empty. It's just how you look at things. For example, maybe for us, how do we look at our ministry? How do we look at our church? How do we look at our own personal life? You may look at your neighbor and friends who, who have yet to believe in Christ, and you be, may be thinking, ah, oh, they like to smoke. I'm not talking about tobacco. I'm talking about the other stuff. They like to cuss a lot. They like to drink. They like to party a lot. There's no way that they seem to want Jesus in their life. Or you can have the attitude of, wait a minute, didn't God give me the command to make disciples of all nations? Didn't Jesus say he'll be with me till the end of the age? I can bring Jesus to them because he's with me. You can either view any situation as an opposition or an opportunity, as an obstacle or an opening. The choice is really yours. But for our Israelite friends here, you know what their choice was? Their choice was to retreat. They're like, yeah, nah. They'll eat us alive. We're like grasshoppers. We're like a whole bunch of caterpies trying to verse a whole bunch of Charizards. We'll get full snizzle. It's like Vindo getting in the ring with Mike Tyson. He has no chance. It'll be all over. Now, why did they think this way? I want to highlight to you today verse 33. This is why they thought this way. Verse 33. We seem like grasshoppers in whose eyes? In our own eyes. And we look the same to them. So the people of Israel saw themselves through their own eyes and through the eyes of their enemies rather than through how God views them. Who's here been to a mirror house? Anybody been to a mirror house? Like the mirror type of maze? Anybody? Yep. So when I was younger, I went to it once. I had a blood nose because I thought it was an opening and I ran and it, hit. it was a mirror. But I remember that experience because every direction that I look told a different story. So one mirror, it made me look like the Hulk at the top, but I skipped leg day. Another mirror made me look all pear-shaped and all funny and my cheeks all puffed up. But then I look at another mirror, it makes me look like Frodo, a hobbit, short and stubby. Every mirror there reflected me, but not the true me. In the Bible, in the book of James, James used the Bible and he, it's a metaphor how the Bible is a mirror, a mirror of truth. Now, why is this mirror of truth important? Because if you're not looking at this mirror, you'll be looking at the world's mirror, what the world has to offer. That's why so many of us buy into the world's lies. You need this brand. You need this product to make you happy. You need these sorts of makeup. Well, that's not going to fix it. Just get plastic surgery. We have people who are killing themselves despite how their Instagram look, despite all the food that they snap and, and all the holidays that they go to. They are deep down depressed. What mirror are they looking at? 
a black mirror. Now, if you watch Netflix series, oh man, all those black mirror series, oh, so depressing. If you are not looking at God's mirror for you, the mirror of truth, you are looking at one mirror or the other. And it reflects you, but not the true you on who you could be. We all heard of the fairy tale, or heard of it, one stage in our life, the fairy tale of Snow White. The story would have been very peaceful if the mirror mirror that was on the wall was a Bible. Now, if this insecure woman went to the mirror on the wall and asked the mirror on the wall, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the prettiest of them all? And if that mirror was the word of God, this is what this mirror would say. And this is to all of you here who feel a bit insecure. It would have said, you're all equal. God is absolutely charmed and smitten by you. You don't need recognition from anybody else. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. You are his daughter. You are his son. God calls you the apple of his eye. So you don't need to go around poisoning and drugging apples to put other girls into a coma. What's wrong with you? That's what was said. But sadly, in our passage, the majority of the people saw themselves through their own eyes and how the enemies saw them instead of how God saw them. It wasn't their true self or who they could be, except for Joshua and Caleb. Now we think this is 2 verses 10. It's not really. The Bible tells us that these 10 convinced the whole nation of Israel. They got the whole nation of Israel on their side and Let's talk about the population. It says in Numbers 11 verse 21, there's 600,000 battle combatant men, like men ready for war. But scholars have kind of estimated that there will be around 2.4 million to 3 million people in that population. So try putting yourselves into Caleb and Joshua's shoes. So you're not just versing 10, you're versing about 3 million people. When you're trying to live a holy life, trying to be obedient to God, would you still speak up for God against the crowd of hundreds, of thousands, of millions? Can you still tell them that they're wrong? Can you risk your popularity? Can you risk your career? Can you risk your life? If you read further into chapter 14, this is your homework, Oikos Church. Go home and read the rest of 14. They, Joshua and Caleb, tried to convince the multitude again and again, tearing their clothes in, in grief. We got nothing to fear. We can do this. We're not the hunted. We're the hunters. God has given them over to us. They're pretty, it's pretty much in the bag. Just don't rebel against God. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this. And you know what happened? The people got so annoyed that they wanted to pick up stones to kill Joshua and Caleb, to execute them. Why? To shut them up. But what happens? God shows up. And God says to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me despite all the miraculous signs that I have performed for them? In other words, what the people did was outrightly rejected God, refused to put 
their faith into him. In, in other words, they're saying, God, you're not good enough. Let's say, for example, it's about anniversary time and the husband is trying to be romantic. And so he goes out to the garden and he, he gathers some flowers to make a bouquet for his wife, waiting for his wife to come home. And when the wife comes home, he says, honey, I got you some flowers. Now imagine how hurt the husband would be instead of the wife coming towards him, she, she kind of steps away. And she says, whoa, 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 whoa. They're roses and roses have thorns. Are you trying to harm me? Imagine how hurt the husband would be. Don't you think any good and loving husband would already remove the thorns and the danger before giving it to his wife? But imagine if a wife there who doesn't appreciate it, but complains about it. What a waste of money. I got it from the garden. What the people of Israelite did, where they pretty much went, promised land? There's giants living there. If only we died in Egypt. If only we, we'd rather just die in the wilderness rather than die by their hands. They only saw themselves through their perspective and their enemy's perspective rather than God's perspective. In Hebrews chapter 3, talks about this event. The people of Israel greatly provoked God because of their hardened hearts and unbelief. Sometimes we think that when we don't trust in God, He's fine with it. It's like, oh, I'm just not trusting you there. No, no. But we don't know that sometimes when we have hardened hearts and unbelief, we are actually provoking God. And He says... You say you want to die in the wilderness? Fine. You guys will wander around in that wilderness for 40 years. No one will make it into the promised land except Joshua and Jacob. That was the consequence. All that said and done, what does this mean for our church as a whole? Our Oikos church. What does it mean for you individually? For me and a lot of things. I believe that we are in a season where we're about to enter something. The promise is just right there for us to grasp it. We can either retreat in fear and say, oh no, we can't do this. Or we can step forward with God. Because he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he is there. Back to the story. We know that they did not enter the land because of their unbelief. But what would have been the opposite of that? Complete trust. And in what sense? Wholeheartedly. And interestingly enough, the name Caleb means in the Hebrew, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. Imagine a father who's out with his son. They are at a swimming pool. The father is already in the pool and says, son, jump down, jump down. Like, it's okay, you can jump down in the pool. But this five-year-old son stands at the edge of the pool and what does he see? He sees himself and he realizes his ethnicity. I'm Asian. We don't go well with water. 
Have you not seen any of those Bondi rescues? It's always <laughs> that needs rescuing. But then he also looks around. Man, that's a lot of water. This is more water than my bathtub can ever hold. Fear starts to creep in. But the father continues to say, jump, it's okay. Jump, you'll be okay. The boy is still hesitant until he looks into his father's eyes and he remembers who he is to his father and who his father is to him. That his father loves him and his father would never let anything happen to him. And so this five-year-old kid, he jumps in the pool and he has the time of his life. And that kid was me. One of my fondest memories of my childhood is just my dad going around the swimming pool and I'm holding on to his shoulders, his, his back, while he takes me around the pool. Who's keeping me afloat? Not myself. I didn't know how to swim. I haven't went to swimming school back then. Dad kept me afloat. Who moved? My dad did. I was just with him for the ride. One of my fondest memories. Can you trust God wholeheartedly? How can you trust God wholeheartedly? It's because He is your dad and He promises that He won't leave you nor forsake you. Lastly, Numbers 13.8. Joshua's name was Hosea. But in verse 16, Moses changes that name to Joshua. Now, Hosea in the Hebrew means salvation. In, generally, in a general sense, when Moses changed his name to Joshua, which is Yeshua, which is the same name that our Lord Jesus Christ has, Yeshua, Yeshua means God, our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. You put the name Caleb and Joshua together, what you get is the gospel wholeheartedly trust in Jesus, our salvation. So whatever you are facing today, may it be persecution, may it be a crisis, may it be sickness, a problem, whatever it is, remember that Jesus has gained the ultimate victory on that cross as He died for your sin, as He won over the victory of sin and death and He rose again. We don't ever have to fear drowning when our lifeguard can walk on water. God bless you, church. So now I'll invite the ushers to come and hand out the Holy Communion as we keep our focus on Jesus Christ. Sometimes fear can immobilize us from entering that promised land, from entering or grasping the promise that God has for our life. And it's in these times that we need to look at Christ once again. And Holy Communion helps us to remind us of what He's done on the cross. That we are moving out, not to gain victory, but in a position of victory. Because He has won it all.